Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Um, today, God speaks to us from Psalm 89, um, verse 1 to 4, and 14 and 52. I will read in Chinese. Uh,我要歌唱耶和华的慈爱直到永远。我要用口将你的信实传与万代。因为我曾说你的,嗯,你的,嗯,慈悲必建立到永远。你的信实必建立在天上。我与我所拣选的人,一律的约,向我的仆
through the Psalms and through this series, we've been looking at specifically, again, these Psalms that have been prophetically speaking about Jesus, the one that we celebrate in this season. Uh, And today, in our final week of Advent, we're going to consider that Jesus is a king who reigns forever. And I'm hoping that today we get a a better sense of what the Bible means by forever and what we are to make of this notion of forever, especially when in the everyday rhythms of our life we have no concept of forever. So, to consider that, let's rather quickly consider four things. A forever uh, domain, a forever love, a forever character, and then finally, a forever praise. All of which comes out of this psalm. So let me start here, a forever domain. So in preparing for today, uh, I ended up down quite a a rabbit hole, actually, uh, regarding the concept of eternity, reading a lot of different things. Of course, we know that there are various world religions and even philosophies have different uh, conceptions of time. Uh, Some of those conceptions are a lot like ours in the sense of it's a very linear uh, sense of time. Others have a more cyclical sense of time. But one of the things that I find particularly fascinating, uh, and I'll be straight with you right now, is like way beyond my depths, is that within the field of physics, uh, there's a whole stream of research that actually researches, researches time and considers the notions of eternity. And because, again, I'll, I'm not going to do it justice, I'm not even going to try, uh, but it's, it's in that realm of study where you get some really interesting things around uh, the multiverse, right? Postulations about the multiverse. But in doing this rabbit hole reading, I came across an article that was written by a physicist, uh, Paul Julian. He's a really smart guy with a whole list of credits behind his name. He worked for the, um, the National Institutes of Technology. I don't even know what this means, but he worked for the Joint Quantum Institute. Maybe some of you know what that means. Um, super smart guy. But he's also a Christian. And so in this article, he's uh, considering the various things that physicists postulate about time, especially eternity. And he assesses how these conceptions intersect with his own Christian faith. Uh, Again, I'm not going to be able to do it justice. But in the article, he says something that was very striking to me and I think is actually incredibly meaningful for us to remember before we go any further as we consider the the concept of forever or time. Um, He's talking about how physicists understand that there was a moment when time as we know it began. When everything that we understand about the universe started. Of course, many would, uh, would call this the Big Bang, and regardless of how one might consider the nature of this bang, uh, nevertheless, there was a moment when time, as we understand it, began. And this is what he says about that moment. Let me just read for you a little bit of an extended quote from him. But this is what he says. He says, It is not meaningful to speak of time before the Big Bang, For time as we know it was only born with the Bing Bang. St. Augustine said pretty much the same thing about time and creation in his confessions, where he recognized that it is not meaningful to speak of time before creation. What Augustine and the entire Christian tradition of classical theism recognizes is that the distinction between God's domain of eternity and our temporal world is, a quanti- is not a quantitative one where there is merely more time in eternity than in our finite universe, as if God were like another object in our universe, even, in some sense, outside of it. He goes on to say, Eternity 
is not just a way of saying a lot more time, but is something, here's the thing that begins to strike me, is something completely and qualitatively different. Rather, the domain of God is of a different order of being entirely with an infinite gap between God and the created world. I find that to be very insightful for us as we begin to think about this idea of forever. We begin to think about this idea of eternity. Because in other words, what he's saying is that there's fundamentally, there's a fundamental difference between the forever of God and the temporalness of us. It is not something that we can comprehend in any meaningful way. And yet by the nature of being a a creature of this eternal creator, there are nonetheless glimpses or experiences of that creator within creation, and yet there's still an infinite gap between us and him. I've used this uh, illustration uh, before, but it's one that comes from uh, C.S. Lewis, that this, this idea, this gap, is much like the difference between uh, Hamlet and Shakespeare, if you've heard this analogy before. As a character in a story written by Shakespeare, Hamlet could not possibly comprehend the reality of or the power of Shakespeare because they are of a completely different order of being. Unless, of course, Shakespeare, in various ways, writes himself into the story of Hamlet, reveals himself to Hamlet, and gives Hamlet vocabulary and concepts and ideas to reveal himself to Hamlet. And similarly, as uh, this uh, um, physicist noted, the domain of God is of a completely different order of being, with an infinite gap between God and the created world. And so while we might get glimpses of that order, they are nonetheless qualitatively, quantitatively, completely different. So that said, several considerations, or several characteristics, rather, of the forever are highlighted in the psalm. So with that concept in mind, right, God existing in a completely different order There are some things in this psalm that speak of this forever that we are nonetheless to process, to wrestle with, and to consider. And one, first, is this concept of a forever love. Uh, Look again at verses 1 through 3. Let me uh, just read this for us quickly. It says, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. Let me stop there. We have no concept of a love that lasts forever. And yet here we have the psalmist say that God's love, it's a love that stands forever and is rooted in a covenant that God has made with his people. Now, the closest thing that we have to such a concept is the concept of uh, marriage, the covenant of marriage. That that relationship is supposed to be uh, one of love that stays faithful forever, so to speak. Or at least in our conception of it, which is until death do us part. We also know, though, that that relationship, especially in the West, has lost a lot of its uh, meaning in this way. And yet we're told, nonetheless, even though we don't really have concepts for it, that there's a love that will last forever forever. Why is it so hard for us to get our heads around that concept? Well, it's because here, what we're seeing described is God's describing a love rooted, again, in a promise 
that he makes. And this is where we need to remember the the kind of love that's, uh, again, back to what we said, qualitatively, quantitatively, of a completely different order. It's a love rooted in a covenant that we have no concept for, no real full grasp of. And again, no, we don't get these little glimpses of the kind of love that's being described here. We can't possibly map our conceptions of love onto the love being described here in God's covenant love for his people. And when we do so, when we try to compare the love that we experience with the love that's being described here, we inevitably are going to in some way distort the nature of this great love because that love, again, is something distinct, beyond full comprehension, because the love that's covenantally forever. Now that, however, brings us to a potentially uh, attention point, because if God's love is rooted in his covenant promises that he makes to his people, and if we are to trust those promises are real, then that does inevitably mean that we need to consider not just the love that God says he has, but also the character of God that says that this love is actually trustworthy and will actually extend into this eternity, that he will actually keep his promises. And so what we see in this psalm is not just that God claims a love that will last forever. We also see a forever character of God that proves that, that's, that this love will actually extend forever. Look at uh, verse 14. It says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Over the years, <clears throat> this verse has been such a meaningful one uh, for me. Uh, over the course of this series, we've talked uh, a lot about uh, the extent to which Jesus is a king uh, and that he rules and he reigns on a throne. Uh, and if you, if you know, the throne uh, of God in the Bible is not a, a literal throne on which God sits, but the throne is a description, actually, of God's rule and reign. And also the characteristics of that rule and, this, and his reign. And so what we see here in Psalm 89 is that it's telling us that the foundations of God's kingdom, right, the very character and nature of God's rule and reign, are fundamentally that of righteousness and justice. And that flowing from that throne of righteousness and justice, one then finds love and faithfulness. The forever character, character of God is that of righteousness and justice. And out of that character flows a covenant forever love. We can't comprehend God's character, especially his righteousness and justice, in ways uh, that the Bible describes, because much like love, our experience of righteousness and justice in our finitude is often flawed and broken. Right? Again, we try to map our understanding of righteousness and justice in the same way that we try to map God's love, our, our conceptions of love, onto God's uh, um, concepts of love. But God's righteousness and justice, again, back to where we started, are quantitatively, qualitatively, of a completely different order. I don't have time to fully address what the Bible means by righteousness and justice, those words, but uh, they actually mean far more than, they're far more robust than the words that we tend to use. But in some sense, righteousness and justice in the Bible uh, are really rooted in God's commitment to seeing shalom in the world, or a perfect peace that comes with this uh, comprehensive wholeness. That's what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of God's righteousness and justice. It's God's perfect peace. And this, my friends, 
we must remember is the character of God, the forever character of God, of his rule, of his reign, of his covenant love. It's one of complete peace, perfect peace, comprehensive wholeness. Now that said, I also recognize that for many, when we look out into a world, into the world, we, we see a world that is full of unrighteousness, of injustice, a world marked by hate, not love, a world marked by unfaithfulness, not faithfulness. And so as a result, it can be hard to comprehend a God who claims a throne of righteousness and justice when, when we look out into the world and all we see is unrighteousness and injustice. And I get that. And I'm not going to try and gloss over uh, that hard reality with some kind of platitude. But at times, I re- even though it can be really hard, nearly impossible to reconcile the world that we see out in the world and this rule and reign of God, what is important for us to remember is that if we want to believe that God is one of a forever covenant love who is committed to perfect peace and a comprehensive wholeness, then we must also believe that he is a God of righteousness and justice, of a completely different order. And that in some ways, we're never going to be able to fully comprehend what that actually means or what that actually looks like in this world in which we live now. And the tensions that come as a result of the sinful, broken world that we live in now, it will be hard to reconcile that fully. And yet, nonetheless, it is true that God does have a forever character marked by righteousness and justice. But it's also the case, even in the midst of that tension, that this is the very reason why we celebrate Christmas. Because at minimum, what we do at Christmas is to celebrate the extent to which God is actually committed to producing and providing that perfect peace that brings that comprehensive wholeness to the covenant people to whom he's made promises. Again, you know, Hamlet, back to that example, could never comprehend Shakespeare unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the story of Hamlet. And the Christmas story is just that, that God in Jesus Christ has written himself into our story. The forever God who rules and reigns in eternity, an eternity that is quantitatively, qualitatively of a completely different order, wrote himself into our story. That the eternal one was made temporal. That the all-powerful one was made vulnerable. That the son of God was made the son of a teenage girl. That the the one who uh, rules and reigns over all things is the one who steps into creation. The one of heavenly riches steps into poverty, the reigning king made a suffering servant. This is what the Christmas story reminds us of. I don't know all that God is doing when he allows the injustices and unrighteousnesses of of this world. But in the words of the late Tim Keller, words I come back to all the time, one reason cannot be that he doesn't care. Because the Christmas story, the incarnation proves the extent to which God is committed to bringing perfect peace to this world of unrighteousness and injustice. And on top of that, the the Christian story, it it continues into the the Easter story with the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the Christmas story and the Easter story then culminates in the end of the story, which is a restoration and renewal of all things. God's forever reign 
is one of a forever covenant love that is rooted in his forever character, all of which, again, is quantitatively, qualitatively of a completely different order, but it's also our great hope that the God of the universe is accomplishing a perfect peace through the work of our Savior, Jesus. That brings us finally and quickly to something else that we see in this psalm. Because not only do we see the extent to which God himself is forever, but the, speak, uh, the, the psalm also speaks of something that we will actually be doing forever. And that's a forever praise. Let me uh, show you what I mean just briefly. Look at verse uh, 52. It says, Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. It's interesting to me. The psalmist here is speaking of a praise that will last forever. You know, years ago, when I was a youth pastor, I had a youth that came to me and made a comment about the idea of heaven. And he said, essentially, that heaven sounds really boring if all we're going to do is be up in a cloud singing to God for eternity. And to be fair, that sounds, yes, that could be maybe get old uh, in the conceptions that he was thinking of. And in hindsight, I wish I had uh, engaged with him a little bit more than I did. But I remember simply saying, you know, we can't comprehend heaven, which is, of course, very true. And on the one hand, when we we think about uh, heaven, and this was very much the case for him, we actually conceptualize it in ways that are actually not very uh, reflective of how the Bible speaks of it. Because this whole idea of being bored is really just a function of time, isn't it? I mean, boredom is kind of connected to time moving slow. But what happens when we're out of the whole reality of time? We step into that, that, that order that's completely different than anything that we have concepts for. And one of the things that's, of course, very true about the notion of the biblical notion of he- uh, heaven is that heaven is not some dreamy, ethereal place that we go off to into the clouds. But heaven is actually a restored and renewed creation. That we don't go up to heaven, but rather heaven comes down to us. And so this forever praise that's described here, like everything else, is of a completely different order. But it's a kind of worship rooted in our experience of that restored and renewed creation. One without sickness, without sorrow, without mourning, without toil, without heartache, without fear, without death. We have no concepts remotely close and yet God who's accomplishing these great things for us welcomes us into that restored and renewed creation and I can't think of anything greater than to spend an eternity experiencing and enjoying that renewed and restored creation thus providing and uh, leading us toward a forever praise when our covenant making God lovingly pursues his covenant people and shows himself to be a righteous, a God of righteousness and justice, and whose love and faithfulness forever go before him, there will be a forever praise that will flow out of that perfect peace that God's accomplishing, that comprehensive wholeness that we will experience. And so to get today, I hope that we would be encouraged with the hope of the Christian story, that our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the one who is the King who reigns forever, is also the one who has stepped into time and space to prove God's commitment to his covenant people, those who trust and rest in him. And I hope that this season would be a new opportunity for us to do just that, to hope and trust in Jesus once again and in deeper and more profound ways. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you, Lord, for your commitment to us. We thank you for your covenant love, and we thank you for the ways that we get to experience something that is of a completely different order, something that we can't comprehend, and yet you promise to us. We thank you that you are an eternal God who knows us, sees us, loves us, and draws us closer to yourself. And we thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you for this season that gives us opportunity to be reminded of what he's done. The king who reigns forever is also the one who has stepped into time and space to prove your commitment to us. Would we be greatly encouraged by this, Lord? And give us opportunities to see him in new and fresh ways, to trust in him in new and fresh ways. We ask all this in his name. Amen. As we now shift uh, to uh, our time of confession, this is our opportunity to consider the ways in which uh, we have not fully trusted and rested in God, our forever King. And my encouragement would just be for the next few moments as we take uh, just a moment in silence to reflect on the ways in which maybe we haven't seen Jesus as this King who rules and reigns over eternity. I know that's hard for us to conceptualize, but I wonder the ways in which our lives would actually be changed if we believed that to be true. I wonder the extent to which our lives uh, would reflect in greater ways um, God's righteousness and justice if we believed him to actually be a God who reigns forever. I think so much of the ways in which we uh, don't obey the Lord, the way that we don't follow him in the ways that we should, is because we don't actually believe him to be this God of great majesty over all things. And so for the next few moments, in just a moment of silence and reflection, ask the Spirit of God to make clear to us the ways we have not taken him seriously as the God who rules and reigns over all things. And as we do that, may we bring those things before him in confession and repentance, trusting that he's a God who hears and desires to forgive. For the next few moments, in silence, let's do that together. Lord, we've confessed to you in the silence of our hearts. But Lord, we know that you hear um, to the depths of our hearts uh, all that we've declared to you and confessed to you, even some of the things that we were afraid to name before you. Lord, we bring them to you, saying all, all we have to bring, our only hope is if you would show us mercy if you'd show us a kindness that we don't deserve, if you'd show us forgiveness. And though we know that when you sent Jesus, your son, that's exactly what you were purchasing for us. A mercy, a kindness, a forgiveness that we could never deserve. And so we turn and look upon him again. We cast all of our sin upon him. And trust that now his righteousness, his belovedness pours forth upon us anew. So for all of us who have turned in faith to you, even as we've confessed, Lord, help us to hear your words of forgiveness anew. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.